Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're still in the sword of the Spirit, but I want to read a very um, succinct chapter, the first chapter of 2 Peter, the first chapter of 2 Peter. And I want us to uh, think about it as I try to read it. And at the very end of it, he has a very clear statement in relationship to the sword of the Spirit. So this is 2 Peter. If you, found, if you were in Ephesians, just keep going back to the right. You'll find it. Go Ephesians, Philippians, Hebrews, James, 1st, and then 2nd Peter. And you want to find it because I'm going to read the whole chapter. So I'm, when I start, I'm going to go pretty fast, so we'll get through it. But I want to set the tone with 2nd Peter chapter 1. The Bible reads as follows. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, is through a knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge temperance, and to your temperance patience, and to your patience godliness, and to Godly brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, or charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall never be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins." Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you in abundantly that you have the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by putting on you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I will put off this, or put off my body, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able to, after my decease, to have these things always in your remembrance. For we have not followed cunning devised fables when we had made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses unto His majesty, for we received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice from Him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard 
when we were with him on the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do, you do well, that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arrives by the will of man. But holy men of God, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Dear God, as we're about to look at the sword of the Spirit, Lord, let us be grounded in that we need to be soldiers of the Word. We need to be diligent at going, reading, and doing. Lord, thank you for your Word once again. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and flick back to uh, Ephesians 6. We're at verse 17. We've been going through the helmet of, or the whole armor of God, and we have finally went to now the first bit of offense, and that is the sword of the Spirit. We did last week the helmet of salvation. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take on the helmet of salvation. We covered that last week, and we're at the second part. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we had, you know, we've, we've been enforcing this so far with the, in the whole Armor of God series. And it's this, you know, the same grace that reconciles us to God, the same grace that, that you and I have been offered that reconciles us to God antagonizes the devil towards us. It's just that plain and simple. When you become a child of God, you become a blip in if you will, Satan's radar. And that warfare that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is not a physical warfare. It is a spiritual warfare. And the, and the whole pieces of the armor that we've talked about in the last few Sundays is a spiritual armor. But we're to put on that armor. If we put on that armor, we literally put on Christ in our life. He is our forebearer. As Bizzle spoke, He goes with us. He directs us. He has everything to do with our thoughts, what comes out of our mouth, what goes in our ears, and where our little feet go. If we have Christ, if we put on Christ and put on that full armor of God, then that's the outcome. You know, when we put on Christ, He is the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There's no doubt about it. The Old Testament ends... And the whole, test, the, the whole of the Old Testament says one great question. Who can stop this relentless sacrificing? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? The great question of the Old Testament when it ends. Who is worthy? New Testament answers. Jesus is worthy. Christ is on, the only one worthy. And the book of Revelation says He's coming back. That's really the... The Bible in a nutshell at a 50,000 foot view. But you know, every time we think about this, we're confronted with trying to do physical battle with, with our people that we have that are antagonizing us or whatever. But our battle literally has forever been a spiritual battle that can only be won through the Word of God and through prayer. And we hopefully will get to that and in the coming Sundays. So the picture that runs all the way through the Bible, when it comes to the, the light of the phrase in the sword of the Spirit, it, it, it's sort of the answer to everything. Who, who is coming? What can come? And it's the Word of God. 
It's the Word of God. So we moved from the armors, and we finished up last week with the helmet, and we moved down now to the two weapons. One weapon will be where we're at today, the sword of the Spirit, and the other weapon will be prayer, we'll get to in the future. Think about what the Bible actually says, and I've, I've picked a couple of verses out, I'm just going to call them out and read them, that are really interesting about what it actually says. So the first one is 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 4. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not physical. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 9, or verse 4. Now 2 Timothy 3, 16, everybody should, should have this posted. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the last one is in Psalms. Psalms 119, verse 105, it says, The Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So think about it. In its really in its totality, the Christian soldier is equipped by, by everything we've been over with everything that's necessary for our spiritual battle with the evil one. We as a church, we continue. We, we, we're, we're settled in what we do. We turn to the Bible together and we listen to the Bible being taught and the Word of God speaks. Just think about the Word of God. It does work the will of God, through the Spirit of God, with the people of God. So the Word of God does the work of God through the Spirit of God in the people of God. So we get to make sure that we're doing that Word of God. So another verse that, that's used a lot when they talk about the sword of the Spirit, and that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is quick, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, it's a wonderful experience if you think about it. If you read the Bible, to really read the Bible and discover that it is a book that actually understands us. It's the only book that ever does that. It's, it's, a, it's an alive book. But it does in a wonderful way, when you read it, it, you see, well, that book really understands me. It really understands everything it does. We realize, you know, that we live in a culture now that doesn't affirm that sort of thing. They sort of think that the Bible should be disregarded. We are told quite a bit to uh, not worry about it. It's been told to be an old relic. Uh, some people tend to say that it has, in the scholarly level, they'll say it has literary skill, but no life-forming uh, uh, application within it. And what happens with that is you can read the Bible. I've said this over and over, but you can read the Bible from front to back and not be saved. You can. People know it. There's people that are, quote, atheists that... Uh, know, the better, know the Bible better than most other people. So knowledge of the Bible isn't what saves you. 
It's the Holy Spirit as it reveals the Bible to you in your life that actually saves you. And so in other words, you can't read it with a casual glance and see the saving life and actually seeing that it is a book about you. You know, we've had, Satan will try that. We've, we've talked about it in all the levels of the whole armor of God. But all Satan has to do in a believer, in someone that is born again, is to get you to doubt something in the Bible. It may be just some little minute something in there that doesn't make any sense to you and then you devise a wrong or that, that's wrong or you, you decide that it's not holy and, and inspired and it doesn't speak to you and you disregard it. Once that happens, the whole Bible is thrown out in your mind whether you know it or not. It was, it was an author of a magazine I found. That's what you get for clicking around a lot on the web searching for stuff. I don't remember exactly where it was, but there was this article. And, and you'll see them a lot of times it'll be, you know, the, the three best books you should read or the three best movies you should go see before you die or something. But this guy had wrote an article that said that I think it was the 12 books you don't need to read before you die. And consequently, the Bible was one of them. This is what he said. He put this part in. I want to read it to you. He says, Those who have read the Bible know that there are some good parts. But overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradicting, foolish, and even at times, ill-intended. Now, that's not a regenerative person that has read the Bible. He may not himself have ever read the Bible, just somebody probably told him that. But how many of you have ever read the opening of a Gideon Bible? I used to be a Gideon before I got called into the ministry. Let me read you a little excerpt. It's wonderful what they put in the beginning, just kind of a forward before the Bible starts. I'm going to read you just a little bit of it. It says, this book, talking about the Bible you're fixing to read, contains the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. So read to be wise. You read the Bible to be wise. You believe the Bible to be safe. You practice the Bible to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food for supporting you, and the comfort to cheer you. That's what the Bible does to believers. And it goes on from there. Think about, I found a real old quote from, from, a, from a monk called Martin Luther. He wrote a book, and in that book, The Bondage of the Will, says something very staggering. Martin Luther, he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. He says, nobody, that's pretty definitive, nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Bible. Now you can tell he wrote that a long time ago. We don't talk about jot and tittles anymore. But in, in, in Bladen County English, nobody who has 
who, who does not have the Spirit of God sees one thing in the Bible. All men have their heart darkened so that even when they discuss and quote all, this, all that is in Scripture, they do not understand or know any of it. That's what Martin Luther said about in the bondage of the will. So think about it. People can sit around, have a conversation about the Bible, but have no sense of what it is about. And the Bible says that because their heart is darkened. Think about the question that uh, J, uh, Job's friend Zohar asked, Zohar asked, it was in Job 17, 4, it says, Can thou by searching find out God? And I did something kind of crazy. Everybody knows what Siri is, right? I asked Siri. I said, let's see, see what they know. Top result. Zohar asked, Can you by seeking find God? Top result. And it's spot on. I love it. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon the, the big debate about man doesn't know God by, really by investigation, but it's by revelation. It's by revelation. That God has disclosed Himself in this world. The God, we, 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 we honor a God who speaks. Think about it. The same way that, let's say for instance, me and somebody out here were sitting in a room by ourselves and neither one of us spoke. We just sat and looked at each other. Neither one of us is going to know what the other one's thinking, right? We have to verbalize something. You have to tell your heart's desire or your heart to God. You have to tell Him, and it's not for Him to know. It's for you to come to terms with it and to tell Him. But you have to see that it is verbal. We serve a God who speaks to us. In the same way, think about it. God has disclosed Himself to us. The sword of the Spirit is absolutely necessary for the coming of the faith, but the knowledge of God, and we'll see that in Romans 1. We'll get to a few verses there in a little while, but, but you'll see that the knowledge of God is inerrant and innate. In other words, it's in everybody. And it's because of just nature itself. And, and what, what that's called... The Bible really reveals God to us in what's called something that's called general revelation. General revelation or special revelation. And what that actually means is we understand the goodness of God, we understand the wisdom of God, the power of God, and it's revealed by His Word to us in, in nature and in creation. Think about it. The light of God refers really to the fact of, of, the, of being in the image of God. So God has made men and women in order that we might know Him and in order that we might enjoy Him. That is our natural state. That, and deep inside the heart and mind of anybody is that conscience of there is a God. I've said forever, atheist or atheism is a choice. Someone that is agnostic, 
That's just a fancy word that says they don't have time for God. They just soon fish and hunt and whatever. They, they, they just don't care. That's what an agnostic is. If you have this friend that is either an atheist or an agnostic, someone that either doesn't care anything about God or who wants to pick a fight with you about the Bible, the Bible's plain. They know the truth. There's no use in fighting with them. They know the truth. They choose not to believe. They choose not to believe. Think about it. Romans 1.19 says this. But verse 19 says it very succinctly. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifested or known in them, for God has showed it to them. They know there's a God. Everybody knows that there's something bigger than us that controls everything. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they know it. The Bible says that they have that revealed in just nature itself. God, God made all of us aware of that. And again, atheism is a choice. I, I've told you all the time, there's no such thing as a true atheist. What, what is a true atheist? A true atheist is someone that has in their mind proven and settled on the fact that this whole thing about seasons and God and, and, and life is just bogus. What most atheists are, are people that grew up in church, not necessarily ever got saved, but something happened and they sort of fell out of grace. They just kind of fell out. Because what happens with God in the life of a believer? Y'all, He'll throw interruptions in your life. He'll, he'll, you'll be do, going along, everything going well, and something will happen. And you'll have to change directions. People call that a happenstance. But in a believer's life, that's God doing some correction or some <clears throat> negotiating someone to go a certain way for His purpose. So think about it. Uh, an atheism is a choice. They know there's a God. That's not a disputable point. Whether you follow Him and believe Him, that's the disputable point. They deny His existence. They reject His authority. Because they'll say things like, a loving God wouldn't do, and whatever it is, wouldn't do that, whatever it is. A loving God wouldn't do that. You remember, most of us were alive during 9-11. The church is filled up with people asking the question, how can a loving God let this happen? Romans 1 verse 20, the very next verse, says this, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even that eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Not only are we accountable, but in many ways we're actually, our life becomes miserable because of that great war that's ensued once we believe. So the Bible says that on the strength of all that God has disclosed about Himself, the rain, the sun, the moon, the seasons, the oxygen, the carbon dioxide that gets turned in, all that stuff, it just looks like it works on automatic screams of a designer. And God says in, in, in Romans chapter 1 that people know that and they are without excuse. The problem is knowledge of knowing that is not saving knowledge. There's a difference. 
That's where the sword of the Spirit comes in at. You can know those things. That's why people that worship, if you think about it, if, if just knowledge of something saved you, okay? Knowledge of something. You know, I believe that something bigger than me, maybe it's a little green Martian control, something bigger than me is controlling, right? That's how a lot of people say. I don't know what it is, but, but it controls everything because it's too consistent. Chaos has never turned into this much repeatability as the world is. The scientists used to think, think about this, the scientists used to think that the sun would burn out. The Bible says when the sun will burn out is when God puts it out. But until then it will shine. It will burn and not be consumed. Y'all, this stuff that we just consider every day is not happening. It is controlled by a being that loves you. That's the story of the Bible. So knowledge of that is not saving. The saving part is that it should bring every man and woman into a saving relationship with God knowing that He loved me and that my sins need to be dealt with and that He's already dealt with it on the cross. And that's what saving faith is. So it's not just knowledge of somebody's in charge of this. That's a beginning, but that's, that's, just not, that's just starting on it. Because that's really, the Scriptures have, has that great theme of God's creation all through the Bible and how we are created in His image. And because of that, we have that innate wanting to do wrong because of the fall. But when we see His grace that comes to us in love, when we see ourselves before a holy God and see the way we are and we know that there's no way to get out, grace comes and says the price has been paid. Think about it. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of Jonah. Think about it. Jonah says in Jonah 2.9, he said, Salvation is of the Lord. We're not saved by ourselves. We're saved by grace through faith, by grace. And it is a gift of God. So if you read the prophets, think about it. The prophets are pointing forward to one that will come. The fulfillment of all those expectations of providing in Himself that which can never do ourselves. In other words, we can never live good enough to be worthy to stand before God. But all through history, that one theme is somebody needs to be perfect. And we can't. But that's the good news of the Bible. God has provided us through with Jesus Christ, that atoning sacrifice, real fancy words, that gift for the sin that we deserve. That's what the gospel says. That's really the good news. The good news in a nutshell is that God through Jesus sent Jesus to earth. We call that the incarnation. We talk about that during Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We call it in Christian terms the incarnation. God with us. God left heaven, come to earth, walked the streets, and lived the life we couldn't live, and was crucified for our sins, for the sins of the world. So the good news is that Jesus has come, has done what we cannot do, and has lived that perfect life, and we've been vindicated of our sins if we believe through the atoning death of Jesus. So it's, it God, in God's mystery, think about it. I don't know why that's the way God decided to do it. It's bizarre to think about it, but that's, that's the way it works. 
That's what satisfied God's wrath. In the mystery of it all and of His purpose, we see the love that takes over for it all and provides the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. And God vindicated that. God amended, if you will, or His stamp of approval on raising Jesus back on, on Easter Sunday. It's really a remarkable story if you think about it. It'll blow your mind if you don't understand it. Think about it this way. The very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, they sinned, they fell. What did God do? He clothed them and He sent them out for the promised land. But He continued to speak to them and work with them. He didn't just throw them out and say, we'll start with somebody else. Did He? That's love. The God who speaks to me, the God who loves me in Jesus, and at the very heart of it, we find ourselves at the sword of the Spirit. We've got to know the Word of God. Do you realize really in the last around 400 years is really only when the printed Word has been available? It's only been just that long. It's not been forever. Before that, it was word of mouth. Before the Reformation and the invention of the printing press, it was oral translation of the Bible. So now it's placed we have Bibles in our hands. We have them on our smartphones. We have them on websites. It's everywhere. But when we turn to the Bible for answers, it tells us in a big sense that we have fallen and fallen out of grace and there's a but. God loves you and Jesus died for you. So let's go to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Let me read you a few verses. One is in 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Jump back into Romans 5, 8. But God commandeth His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Back in 1 John 4, this time in verse 10. Wherein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be that propitiation for our sins. You know, when you, when you take the Bible and you read it, it's really a dangerous book to read because it's a lie. It will speak to you. It will show you no other book in the world. It's no other books like it. We see in Hebrews back where I read that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. If you read it, it will tell you who you are and how you're standing with God is out of whack. So in other words, it's, it's like a scalpel in a surgeon's hand. It's skilled. The Bible is skilled in just cutting away the layers to reveal the sin in our life. If you read it with an open heart, the Bible will penetrate your conscience. The Bible shows that even our inner thoughts are known of God. See, we can have a lot of, uh, you can have somebody that's really quiet, but God knows everything you ever think. Everything. And if you wonder where I get that from, just read Psalms 132. 139, excuse me, around verse 2. Because the Bible is no ordinary book and because God says that what the Bible says is what the Bible really says is what God says, so how do we hear the voice of God? It's through the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit. We hear the voice of God. We're persuaded. Our eyes cannot see the Bible in the Word of God. We can't see it. It's the Word of God that reveals that our eyes cannot meet our need. It cannot see our need because we're guilty and lost before a holy God. We see that in the Bible. As we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit reveals and illumines the Bible, the pages to us that we will see and be known of the grace of God. You know, I've heard people say, ask the simple question, what is truth? 
Well, if, if you go back, if you do a study of history, truth started in the Bible. God instituted truth. The only proof that the Bible is, is true is the Bible because there's no other authority above it. You believe that? Then if that's true, then when we get bombarded with all those alphabet soup groups that come about, you can't change that Bible and say it's all right because it doesn't, does it? They, just like you, need to be saved. There's no higher authority. Think about it. If the voice of God, as if it were coming out of His mouth, speaks to you, when a believer reads God's, God's Word and it confronts you and challenges you, that is the work of the Spirit in your life. That is God telling you, even, even just the ramblings of my mouth does not save anybody. It is the work of the Spirit in your life that's saying what He's saying true, what the Word says is true. You are sunk. You need to be saved. That sort of thing is a work of the Spirit. Faith is not self-produced by any clever invention, but by a faith. When you have faith, it is a faith that is created in the heart of a man or a woman by reading the Word, the Word of God, and it speaks to you. And it's done really, literally, by none other than God Himself through the Holy Spirit. We have that as, as our refuge. So the message, think about it. John 12, 49 says this, For I have not spoken of myself. Jesus was saying this to the disciples in John 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment that I should say and then what I should speak. So Jesus proclaimed the Word of God being the Word of God the Father so that we, when having the sword or the Word, we can trust it and believe it and share it with everyone that we meet because it is the only thing that will save is the Word of God. Creation shows there is a greater being, but this Word, the Word of God, is the only thing that will save. Dear God, as we're here today, Lord, we... We just beg You for an a, a even stronger illumination in the Word, Lord. Let us be stewards of Your Word. Lord, let us know how to wield the sword of the, sword of the Word, the, word, the sword of the Spirit, Lord, the Word of God. We do it in love, Lord. We do it in patience, Lord. We do it in, most of all, in love. Lord, let us be students of the Bible. Lord, let this year be the year that Briar Branch ups the level of knowledge of God's Word. Lord, that we can be children of the light that others can see you in us. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the honor and the pay and the grace and the glory for it all. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.